0: you know. All right, we are obviously in church history, and we are in the modern age. We're in the, in the 20th century, and everybody said, yay, because we've been doing this for 900 years. <laughs> <laughs> actually, 2,000 years. <laughs> want to do it that way. And we were talking about, this is where we left off the, the last time, which is actually two weeks ago, but we were talking about um building up empires, and that and the, the very superpowers are doing kind of nasty things. So let's, just so that we remind ourselves where we're at, um, let's talk about what the world has been doing for the last couple of years. We talked about the Spanish-American War, yep. where, amongst other things, uh, the United States took the Philippines away from the Spanish, right? Because everybody, when we, if you remember anything about the Spanish-American War, you usually think of Cuba, which is where a lot of the fighting was done, but also the Philippines, and most forget that, but that's where we took the Philippines away from the Spanish, and then there was the Philippine-American War, where we took the Philippines away from the Filipinos. And nobody remembers the Philippine-American War, we're, you know, it's like, oh, the Spanish-American War, I vaguely remember that, and there was the Philippine-American War, which nobody remembers, which is no, a shame, because the we're Filipinos do. we the ones where we the bad guys. We're never the bad guys. We're the United States. There is, and, and and I love my country. Don't get me wrong, but there is a jadedness when it comes to American history. We we like to remember all those wars where we were the good guys, and none of the ones where we were the bad guys, and even the ones where we were the, the people do remember you know, Vietnam. You go, know, well, it was complicated. Kind of like to leave it at that. Um, but there's a sense that that, that we're the good guys and all these things, you know, because it's us, isn't it? So I mean, we never do concentration camps. Actually, we did. In the Philippine-American War. Well, we never, we never tortured prisoners. Actually, we did recently at Gitmo. No, well, we never, we never ignored the Geneva Convention. We frequently have ignored the Geneva Convention. There's there's different things where, I'm not saying we are a horrible nation. I'm just saying er, people do. You know, just like other nations screw things up, we've screwed things up. But we tend to think, oh, things are so much worse than they were now in the 1950s. No, so, oh, pretty much we've always been screwed up, you know. Well, things are, things, we used to be an amazingly good nation. We've had our moments. I mean, the whole Ethiopian conflict, we were about as white-hat as you could be. We were the really the good guys with all that. And then Somalia? Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Then there's also the Samoan Civil War, where we took Samoa away from the Samoans, right? And half of it from Germany. There was German Samoa and American Samoa, right? So, and then eventually German Samoa just became Samoa. And American Samoa is still American Samoa, right? Yeah. So, but that's okay, because it's not like we've conquered it. It's not a colony. Bad guys make colonies. Good guys make territories. Right? It's an American protectorate. It's not a colony. We don't do colonies. All right, anyway. And then there's the Second Boer War, which we weren't involved with, necessarily. But Britain took South Africa away from the South Africans, right? Killed, like, 6,000 soldiers and 50,000 civilians a lot of dead followers because of the concentration camps, which the British really are the ones who, who clarified and defined what a good concentration camp is. Up until that point, it's, it, it was inappropriate, but the British made it completely inhumane. So the Germans learned from the British how to do that. Anyway, there's also the Boxer Rebellion. That one we were totally involved with, For pretty much all the European powers tried to divvy up China. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And then there's the Perdicaris incident that we talked about back in Morocco, where the United States is like, we're going to police the world. We didn't do a good job on that one. We've gotten much better at policing the rest of the world now, but we at least tried back then. All of this is to say, over the last decade, even, not even decade, there's been a lot of Western people doing a lot of nasty things to a lot of non-Western people, right? Which luckily didn't carry over into into the 20th century at all. But, um, kind of a nasty time. I say all that to give us a context for the quest of the historical Jesus that was published in 1906. Now, when I popped this up here last time, for those of you who remember, there was an immediate but loud boo that went on. Somebody booed rather loudly. You don't have to say his name. But somebody booed really loudly, and I said, "You booed Albert Schweitzer. Can you boo Albert Schweitzer? Because the book is written by Lutheran theologian Albert Schweitzer. If anybody remembers, they, they tend to remember. Well, they tend to remember him as that really nice guy that helped people in Africa, right? He's that really nice guy. got a Nobel Prize for peace, and he's still a really a good guy. Anyway, Schweitzer actually made his name as an organist. That's what he was famous for." Is this great Lutheran organist, great musician who went all over the place playing. Nobody remembers that because we like our history simple. Anyway, um, but he was also a theologian, almost more of an armchair theologian, uh, because he wasn't... I mean, there's people who spend all their lives going into academia and really focusing on the stuff, and, and they've, they've studied under important theologians. It wasn't Schweitzer so much. Again, more of a, the organist side of things, but still a theologian. And as he studied scripture, it came to the conclusion that Jesus did all the stuff that he did specifically because Jesus thought the end of the world was near. I mean, he specifically talked about, I'm coming soon, this generation won't pass away, yada, yada, yada. Jesus was quite certain that he was doing everything he was doing because the end of everything was that close. Does that make sense? Okay, some of you nod, some of you shaky-heady. Okay, those of you, shaky-heady, why? Well, he did say that, and he was referring more towards the end of the Jewish nation. Okay. And the problem is, interpreting what he said, we, it's a lot easier now. Mm-hmm. So we can look back, but at the time, it may have seen that. Or even some of what Paul wrote, mm-hmm. may have seen that. Uh, it, was a, it was a short time. But, mm-hmm. And so when Jesus is talking about this generation won't pass away, he was talking about, um, uh, like I said, maybe the, the Jewish nation, he's talking about this humanity won't pass away before we come back. There's all sorts of different ways of interpreting that. Um, but uh, when Schweitzer put together things like, well, maybe this, maybe John is going la- to still be alive by the time I get back, maybe this generation is still going to be around, he says, well, since the world didn't end, back in the first century, Jesus was obviously wrong. And if Jesus was wrong, then that means he's not infallible. Yeah? Isn't there a passage where Jesus says only the Father knows? Yes. The Son doesn't know? Right. So even Jesus admits that he's wrong. He wasn't thinking he was wrong, he just he didn't know. He didn't know. And, that's the, and that is the that is key issue, is that Jesus isn't saying, well, I'm just basically clueless. He's like, no, I as I... I didn't empty myself of my, of my divinity, but I, I did, I, I, as I came to, to, to live amongst humans, I, I did empty myself of some of the omniscience. You know, there are things I don't know. Um, but to Schweitzer, that meant that Jesus was wrong. He was not correct. He was, in, he was not infallible, which means he wasn't divine, but instead was just a really nice guy who loved God, loved people, and was willing to give himself to serve others. That's what Jesus was. Therefore, that's what being a Christian is. A Christian, a little Christ, a follower of Christ. You just need to do that. That's what it's all about. Everything the modern church believes about Jesus, that he's some sort of Messiah who came to forgive sins, who died for sins, who instituted God's kingdom, that's, that's a joke. None of that's real. That's a total fabrication built up over the centuries. In fact, theologians have mixed the real historical Jesus, the real one, who actually did stuff with the later mysticism of Paul. Schweitzer hated Paul. Because Paul clearly is making stuff up. Right? If you've ever read the book, The Last Temptation of Christ, or seen the movie, The Last Temptation of Christ, that's basically even a, a main theme of that is Paul just invented his own Jesus. Couldn't care less about, in fact, there's a scene in the movie where where, if I remember correctly, Jesus meets Paul. And Paul's like, because Jesus didn't die on the cross there. And, and Paul says, You're, I made up a better Jesus than you. So, yeah, I mean, it's like, yeah, this is, all this stuff is made up later. All these other theologians added stuff later. All these people who redacted the Bible made all this stuff up later. That's not Jesus. Everybody just kind of reads into the Bible whatever they feel like reading into the Bible. We need to get back to the meat of the history of the Bible. So, if you want to be good Christians, i.e. if you really want to follow the historical Jesus, then you need to live like he did. You need to forget what Jesus taught wrongly about himself. Because there were a few things that Jesus said about, you know, actually being more than just a really nice guy going around helping people. Aren't there some things that Jesus said about himself more than I'm just a really nice guy going around helping people? I'm the way, the truth, and life. That's crazy talk. So you can ignore all that stuff that Jesus said about himself. And you should check most of what his other teachings were, because, again, he threw in mysticism, he did all sorts of different things, plus some of it was obviously added by people like Paul or the gospel writers later, because the historical Jesus wouldn't say stuff like that. So you can check most of his other teachings. You should just figure out what he did. He walked around being a really nice guy, helping people, right? He loved God, he loved people, and he gave up his life to serve other fellow human beings. That's what you need to do. Yes? Did he believe the miracles then? Um, I don't know exactly. Because um, some of them, it's, it, it kind of depends on the miracle, because some of them are wrapped up in Jesus proving who he was, which he wasn't, therefore that miracle wasn't like that. Um, but I think Schweitzer would agree that God can step into, into reality and do stuff, because God is unreal, and when it comes into reality, does stuff, and then leaves again. Kind of almost like a deist in some ways. He said, take care of the poor. He hugged a leper. Dude, read your Bible. He hugged a leper. That's the key thing. He hugged the leper. Anyway, all this is to say, with this in mind, Schweitzer went into uh, medical studies, because the organist come theologian, is now organist, theologian come doctor. And so he went to study medicine so he could go to Africa and help the natives there. Um, Clearly... His theology, from our perspective, is off, right? But his motives were good. Forgive a long quote, but he says, if all this oppression, all this sin and shame are perpetrated under the eye of the German God or the American God or the British God, and as we look at recent events here, you can see a lot of perpetrated stuff. Um, And if our states don't feel obliged first to lay aside their claim to be Christian, then in the name of Jesus, then the name of Jesus is blasphemed and made a mockery. And the Christianity of our states is blasphemed and made a mockery before these poor people. The name of Jesus has become a curse, and our Christianity, yours and mine, has become a falsehood and a disgrace that the crimes are not atoned for in the very place where they were instigated. For every person who committed an atrocity in Jesus' name, someone must step in to help in Jesus' name. For every person who robbed, someone must bring a replacement. For everyone who cursed, someone must bless. And now when you speak about missions, let this be your message. We must make atonement for all the terrible crimes we read up in the newspapers. Do you understand the rationale here? Given everything we've been looking at, do you see why he's like, yeah, this is... We're anti-missioning all around the world, right? In the name of Christ, we're going on doing horrific things all around the world. I think it makes a certain amount of sense. Now, can you make atonement or something that somebody else did like that. No. But can you say, we have we have done horrific, unpleasant things and said we are Christians to the Chinese, to the Filipinos, to all these different groups. Maybe that's where we ought to go and be missionaries and do good things. I don't know. Because right now, I'm pretty sure that when they think of the United States, they think rotten people who were mean during the Boxer Rebellion. How about we go be nice people who are nice after the Boxer Rebellion? Makes a certain amount of sense. Having said that, on the other hand, his basic argument was it's the duty of European Christians to save Africa from the Africans. Um, and, and from <coughs> primitive Africans from themselves. He said, I let the Africans pick all the fruit they want. See, the good Lord has protected the trees. He made the Africans too lazy to pick them up, to pick them bare. He cared about the African people. Don't get me wrong. But he had this whole reverence for life philosophy. You have to revere all life. Completely. He's strict vegetarian, etc. All life, all life is sacred. But he saw them as basically savages. It's like, they're just a step above animals. But of course, he really revered animals. I would never eat an animal. I would, ne- I would always take care of animals. So I've got to take care of these. No, they're not animals, but they're so human. He said the Negro is a child, and with children, nothing can be done without the use of authority. We must, therefore, so arrange the circumstances of daily life that my natural authority can find expression. With regard to the Negroes, then I coined the formula, I'm your brother, it's true, but your elder brother. There's a particularly repellent quote from Schweitzer, and there's this huge debate as to whether or not he actually said it. Um, in his journals, uh, supposedly he said some stuff in the German journals, and that was translated into English in its original uh, original English edition, and then excised out from all future editions. The problem is I can't find the original edition. So I, I'm still looking for it, so I can I can read it in German and try to figure out if he actually said it. But it's, but the point is, I know he actually said these things. So it, the idea of saying, yes, I'm there for them, I I want to take care of them, but basically because they're savages and they need somebody to take care of them, and they're children, they're not our equals. But that just means noblesse oblige. We have the obligation. To help the Africans because, you know, who they are. See, now, where's the boo? We've been waiting for the boo, man. There's a there's a good boo moment. Anyway, having said all that, in the name of living out that selfless love of Christ, even though we'd say his 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 hermeneutic for understanding that is terribly off, Schweitzer spent six decades actively working to help. The Africans. And that's great. And not just Africa, all around the world. He was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in nineteen fifty-two. And in his later years he used that notoriety to speak out against colonialism, to speak out against especially nuclear war, speak out against the eating of meat, speak out against Gandhi. Why would he why would he attack Gandhi? Anybody, Anybody want to take a stab? Because Gandhi's also a vegetarian. Gandhi, Gandhi's also a peace guy. Uh, he's as Christian as anybody because he does really nice things because he loves people and really. No, he loved that part of Gandhi. Because even passive resistance is still resistance. Even passive resistance is still resisting evil, and thus functionally, it's the same thing as active resistance. You should not resist evil it's resisting at all. Authority. Yeah. It's still, so it's still resistance. So Gandhi is just playing into the power elite. Same thing. And Schwenkmann. Nobel Peace Prize. Anyway, so, between his writings, his life's work, etc., Schweitzer influenced the next hundred years of good people, encouraging them that good, being good itself is what Christianity is all about. Seriously, ask me, how has that influenced Christianity in the last hundred years? How would you ask, how would you think that most Christians and non Christians view what it means, what are you supposed to be as a Christian? Aren't you supposed to be? a nice person who is nice to people when need an amazing number of, of denominations you ask them tell me about your missions work they go well we built bridges in Paraguay and we helped get uh, we dug a well in Uganda which is great I mean don't get me wrong that's important but is that missions in and of itself missions is being nice to people and helping their physical condition that's what it means to be a Christian. You say, let me speak truth and love to you about something that you'd rather not ha- hear me speak truth and love to. And you say, and here you call yourself a Christian. I thought you were supposed to be nice. And here you told me I was wrong. You are supposed to be nice as a Christian. You are. Is that what it means to be Christian? No, it's part of showing that you are a Christian. Right. But it is more than just that. In Schweitzer, it's no, no. Our whole point is to go around being nice to people and making everybody's physical situation nicer. Like, well sometimes the nicest thing I can do is rip a band-aid off. Or, you know, like, re-break your leg so that it heals right. There are some times that the nice thing doesn't feel so good to you. And there's a lot of times where I can come and say, the best thing I can do to help you is not to fix your physical situation but to speak to your spiritual condition. It's a different kind of way of looking at things. Yeah? So, I guess don't yeah and and I mean please I don't want anybody walking away thinking I'm saying that to be a Christian you should not be nice or that it's wrong to deal where I say take a well in Uganda I'm not saying that at all and and, and you're, all the words that you use, even speaking truth and love, all the words that you throw at people, if there isn't a context of relationship, a context of caring to it, then that's kind of pointless. But it should be an all-encompassing package. I mean, you really should. should there's a whole gospel. The good news is not that God loves you and wants your life to be improved. The good news is that Christ died for your sins, and you can be changed eternally as a result of that. All right. Same year, 1906. The Azusa Street Revival began. Anybody ever hear of Azusa Azusa Street? Okay, a couple of you. A guy named William Seymour, born in Louisiana, baptized as a Catholic. But he goes north with his family and becomes a Christian, gives his heart over to the Lord in Indianapolis. Comes a pastor and studies under other pastors like Charles P. Jones in Mississippi and Charles, everybody's named Charles, by the way. (laughs) You're going to find a lot of Charles. Charles in Houston, Texas. And I should stop for a second. Parham is a nut, okay? He's a bit of a strange, strange guy. He preached in the Methodist Episcopal Church. He was never ordained, but he was kind of a pulpit supply guy. And he believed the best way to prepare for a sermon is to just go into a room, close the door, turn off the light, and listen to God to give him direction. That whole thing like studying, preparing, that kind of stuff, it's like, no, 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 no. It is a sin to not just let God give you the message directly. Okay, again, I'm a big fan of the not-either-or. You know, when, I, when I'm preaching, I do a lot of preparation, a large part of my preparation is to sit and pray and say, God, lead me in this. Anyway, you also believe the British were, in the lost tribe of Israel who uh, have been wandering since the exile, because, you know, clearly, when, when I look at Benedict Cumberbatch, I say, <laughs> 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 clearly a man of color, <laughs> cast him as, as a seed. Anyway, um, Sure, that makes sense. Um, And white people are created on the eighth day after God rested and came back after creating everybody else on the sixth day. Clearly. It's so clear. It's clear as the nose in your face. Um, And then only 144,000 people would survive the tribulation because everybody else is going to be destroyed because there is no hell. It's just, you're destroyed. So there's going to be 144,000 people that are saved. Those who have been sealed to God through glossolalia. Anybody know what glossolalia is? Oh. Yeah, it's Greek for to speak or make noise with your tongue. It's a miracle attested to in Scripture, where people spoke in other languages. Paul says, "Yes, that's what seals your salvation and makes it firm in God." So you so have I to have speak. A JW background just a no. Other okay. um, groups like the Quakers and Moravians and other people have been doing speaking tongues for centuries. So this isn't just a crazy Parm thing. they have been a lot of people doing it. Seymour says, Parm, you're a nut. <laughs> but I do like that speaking in tongues thing. That actually makes sense, because like, I see that all over the place in Scripture. That um, British are a lost tribe of Israel. Eh, I'm struggling with that one. But I look at speaking in tongues, and it's in Acts, it's in Corinthians. Yeah, okay, I'm, I, I'm on that one. So, both of them taught, and just so they were all on the same page as to what we mean by this, Both of them taught that the Holy Spirit could come upon you and fill you to overflowing, super saturate you. You might receive the Holy Spirit when you become a Christian, but this isn't isn't saying you didn't have the Holy Spirit in your life before. This is, um, think of it as you've got a glass, an empty glass, and when you become a Christian, God pours the Holy Spirit into you. There are moments where you take that and throw it into the ocean. It's completely saturated, it's completely overflowing with the Holy Spirit. So it's not saying you didn't have the Holy Spirit before. So according to Seymour, this, the initial manifestation of when that Holy Spirit fills you to overflowing is speaking in tongues. You're, you're always going to do that first. That's going to be how you show that you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. And taking a nod from Acts 1, he used the phrase baptism in the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus says, oh, the Spirit's going to come and baptize you. So, baptism in the Holy Spirit. I don't know whether you're Pentecostal or not, open to that or not, that's, hey, that's what he says. So, Seymour begins preaching that, and somebody actually hears it, and says, boy, you've got to come to my church. So she goes back to her church in California, she convinces her pastor to pay for Seymour to come out and speak there for a month, and so Seymour got a bunch of affairs in order, packed up for five weeks, went out there to went out there to California to, uh, to preach for a month, and after his first Sunday, they padlocked the church so that he couldn't come back and preach anymore. So he uh, didn't necessarily like the message. So he starts preaching at a nearby family home, and people from all walks of life start coming. Um, every ethnicity, every social stratum, every, everybody starts coming to listen to this. After a month of these, and after he had gone through three days of, of fasting, this guy named Edward S. Lee finally spoke in tongues. And then more people spoke in tongues and eventually see more spoken tongues. Soon they had to rent a nearby building on Azusa Street. Um, that actually was started off, it was going to be a church building and didn't I a mean, long story. Anyway, thousands of people started coming to this, they were being baptized in the Holy Spirit, they were speaking in tongues, big, huge to-do. So local papers like the LA Daily Times said, they're nuts! These are kooky people! Weird babble of tongues, they say. You know, this crazy stuff. Other papers were more concerned, specifically because of the quote, disgraceful intermingling of the races, unquote. Because if you look at this picture, I everybody, there's women, there's men, there's black people, there's white people, there's children, there's old people. They purposely got for this picture a snapshot of what's going on in the Azusa Street Revival. It's just crossing all sorts of boundaries. And they, a lot of there's a newspaper that concluded that the congregation were all quote, mad, mentally deranged, or under a spell, unquote. Local churches specifically called the police to shut the group down because clearly this is drawing people away from Christ. In fact, yeah, a couple of them even referred to Seymour as this illiterate lunatic, of which he was neither. Within a couple of years, the revival kind of fizzled because most of them do, let's be honest. Especially ones that are extremely emotive. It's like, no, oh, it's kind of fizzle. Having said that, by then, this, this phenomenon caught on. There were, there were churches all across the country that were doing this kind of stuff. The Azusa Street group had sent out missionaries all over the place, but beyond that, a number of churches had sent people to them to see what was going on and brought that back to their churches. So even though the revival itself was done by 1913, doesn't matter. There were churches all across the country, all across the world, that were doing stuff with it. And Pentecostalism remains the fastest-growing version of christianity out there. There's over 500 million pentecostals in the world today. In South America, the pentecostal churches made more uh, more growth than any other. Yep. Yep. So I mean, this is this is kind of huge actually. Now, 1907, Church of God Christ is founded, which is actually a lie. I should back up. Technically, technically it was founded back in 1897 by a guy named Charles H. Mason, because everybody's named Charles, and by Charles P. Jones, who so we already just saw, right? We just saw a little bit ago. Both of whom were members of the Holiness Movement. You guys remember what the Holiness Movement was? Okay. See, this is why I do this, because I, I knew I was going to ask that, and I knew people were going to go, oh, I think.
1: Okay. Remember the
0: open-air Methodist revivals from the 18th and 19th centuries? An evangelists like Charles Penney emphasized perfectionism um, in, the, in the Great Awakening. And if you remember that, that's saying if you're really, truly saved, you're going to get to the point where you no longer sin. God will clear out the sin nature in you, and he embraced this, doc, this doctrine within the Methodist Church of a second work of grace that cements your salvation. Yes, yeah, so you can be saved, but then there has to be a second work of grace for that salvation to kind of stick. Which is exactly what Augustus Toplady wrote about in his first version of *The Rock of Ages*, right? Remember when we talked about that. Okay. The idea that there's a double cure—you're going to be saved from God's wrath, but then secondly, you'll be saved from sin itself, and you will be completely holy. Yes. So, modern example of the holiness movement would be the Church of the Nazarene. Anybody ever hear the Nazarenes? Yeah. Um, founded in 1908 when Pastor C.W. Ruth helped organize the merger of 15 different holiness churches. Uh, primarily led by a guy named Phineas Brace, uh who left a high position in the Methodist Episcopal Church to take uh, an outreach of homeless in Los Angeles. This non-denominational thing. So, I mean, this is a good guy trying to do good things. Yeah. I would not be at all surprised. <laughs> I would not be at all surprised. Famous members and former members of the Church of Nazareth include Dr. James Dobson, founder of Focus on the Family, and uh, gospel singer Bill Gaither, um, Bob Pierce, the founder of World Vision and Samaritan's Purse. Anybody here yours Samaritan's Purse? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard of them. Every Friday. Everybody anyway. thinks that they're what? us. <laughs> Charles Templeton, founder of Youth for Christ, anybody here? Charles Templeton, okay. Who actually then went to a liberal Princeton Theological Seminary and ultimately lost his faith rather loudly. But anyway. So, okay. Was he the same guy that was, he started off with Billy Graham? Yes, they were best friends, yeah. So, Mason and Jones were so dedicated to teaching second work of grace stuff that they actually were, spelled from the Baptist, started their own church. Um, 1906. Jones, who had been kind of a mentor to Seymour, sends Mason out to Azusa Street to see what's going on with Seymour. It's like, okay, I, I helped mentor this guy, and now I'm hearing colorful things. Why don't you go figure this out? So Mason gets baptized in the Holy Spirit, which Jones was not happy about. He's like, wait a minute. It is so not what I expect you ought to do. So they amicably part their ways, and Mason keeps the Church of God name and turns it into a Pentecostal church in 1907. So even though it's technically founded in 1897, it's founded as the Church of God in Christ by Mason in 1907 as a Pentecostal church. Making it the first legally charted Chartered Pentecostal body incorporated in the United States. So this is even though even though Pentecostalism has been going on for the last year, um, and Parham has been preaching it since like 1901, this is the first official Pentecostal church. Uh, Mason remained actively <coughs> involved in the COGIC till his death in 1967, 1961 like at the age of 97. And the church has had some controversies that are probably worth commenting on. First off, Mason was kind of famous for digging up roots and then examining their shape to figure out what God wants us to do, because that's what his family had been involved with in voodoo. So there's a syncretism there that's a little funky. Now, I'm not saying that Pentecostals are voodooists. You know, please understand, I oh, want you to yeah, it's all voodoo. No, 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 no. There can be a danger... There can be a danger once you say, hey, I, I just want to be led around by spirits, or I just want to I want to divine God's will. There can be a, a danger that if you're not careful about how you do that, you open yourself up to all sorts of funky things. Which is not to say that you shouldn't then ever open yourself up to being led by God in unique ways. Or, I'm just saying, anytime that you open yourself up, walk that carefully and and biblically with things. Uh, by the way, um Former Church of God and Christ minister, now Unitarian minister, Carlton Pearson, who recently preached along Al Sharpton, affirmed that syncretism saying, hey, no, that was a valid way of upholding one's African identity within a dominant white religion, which is unfortunate on a number of levels, not the least of which is to say Christianity should never be seen as a white religion, but I get it. Anyway. Another right. controversy was in 2014, when the superintendent, uh, Earl Carter, gave a message where he said, gay men are sissies, and declared, you want to feel like a girl? I wish God would give you the monthly of a girl. I wish he had you bleeding out your butt. So the bishop, uh, Charles, Charles, Charles E. Blake, catac- well, he said, you, you really need to apologize for that. That's, you went a bit far. Um, and, and, uh. Carter categorically refused to apologize. He's like, I'm not apologizing for anything. Not one word of it. In fact, he started his own YouTube channel so that he could weekly talk about how horrible the Church of God in Christ is, even though he's still a superintendent in the Church of God and Christ. You want to talk about having an uncomfortable denominational situation, I can only imagine where your bishop is weekly talking about things... Corruption widespread among COGIC leadership. Payoffs, bribes, threats, rigged elections, extortion, sexual sins. You know, you're a superintendent. Colorful. come he wasn't Because he, as, as soon as things started getting complicated, he asked for a church court to actually work through things. And so the wheels of bureaucracy grind very 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 slowly. Related news, Italian missionary Luigi or Louis or Luis Francesco, who became a Pentecostal because he went to the the church of William Durham in Chicago, who actually had a pretty solid mind here. Durham is worth noting because he actively disagreed with what has become known as a three-stage salvation process that the Pentecostals of the day were preaching. They were preaching, first you're saved by, from God's wrath, then you're saved from sin itself, and then you're saved, 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 saved through baptism in the Holy Spirit. That's when it really locks in. So it's actually a three-part salvation process. And he said, um, actually I don't see any of that in Scripture. How about, you have baptism in the Holy Spirit that comes as something that happens after your genuine complete, until your conversion. You accept Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit, and those people from whom God has breathed the Holy Spirit can be baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's kind of what happened in in the New Testament. How about we how about we just do it that way? And that became the Orthodox view among the most modern Pentecostals. In fact, in 1914, when the Assemblies of God was founded, that's what they went with. They're like, okay, yeah, you it's it's not that there's a three-part salvation process. It's if you are saved, if you are a Christian, you can receive a baptism in the Holy Spirit where you're inundated with the Holy Spirit. So, I don't want you walking like, going, oh, Man, the assemblies think like, you have the second work of grace thing, and you have to do this before you really it. Some do, but in general, no, it's more. Some still that way, though. Functionally, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and there's a whole, we'll talk about the assemblies next week. But I just wanted to say, most modern Pentecostals, this became kind of the norm. Anyway, but I just called by God to, to found all sorts of Pentecostal oh. churches across the United States, but also in Europe and South America. So, in 1910, he started the Christian Congregation of Brazil. I can't do Portuguese, so, Paul, how would you pronounce this? There you go. Founding the first Pentecostal church in South America. So now there's a Pentecostal church only in North America, but in South America, and the spirit of full disclosure, their main church building, in São Paulo, always reminded me of the Hall of Justice in, in the Super Friends. <laughs> and now that I've shown you you will never be able to unsee that <laughs> but it's, it's a little scary to me, anyway point is <laughs> moving on totally different gear, Christian flag is designed in 1907 the idea of a Christian flag came up back in 1897 when uh, Charles Overton <laughs> Charles Overton uh, had to come up with a lesson on the fly when his Sunday school teacher didn't come They had a Sunday school speaker that was supposed to speak, and the guy didn't show up, so he's like, ah, hey, i got an idea, because he had led the children on uh, 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 on a parade one time carrying little American flags, and then later saw liquor dealers carrying the same flags in the same parade, and he's like, that doesn't seem right. How come we got the same flag? Surely. No, No, we can't have the same flag. Surely the Christian army needs its own colors, right? We need our own flag, an army without its colors is inconceivable. Why not equip the army of the Lord with a flag appropriate to its mission? So, in his Sunday school class, he said, how would you design a flag? And ten years later, he actually sat down with somebody to design a flag. And so, according to the Christian advocate in 1909, the ground is white, representing peace, purity, and innocence. The upper corner is a blue square, the color of the unclouded sky, emblematic of heaven, The home of the Christian, also a symbol of faith and trust. In the center of the blue is the cross, the ensign and chosen symbol of Christianity. The cross is red, typical of Christ's blood. (laughs) What? That's what I was going to say. It took him 10 years to get around to it. Stop. Okay, what's interesting is that clearly, clearly, this is designed theologically, right? Because when you think of of the color of the sky, that's the blue you picture, right? Ironically, and it just came out this way, much like throwing gold into a, into a, a pile <laughs> Ironically, um, it's the same dimensions as the American flag, and the exact same colors as the American flag. And, and it's got a thingy up and a blue thingy up in the corner like the American flag. I mean, it's not based on the American flag. It just has exactly the same colors, exactly the same proportions, and exactly the same parts, just with the colors all mixed around. Yeah, go figure. They should put stars in the heaven. Oh, they should! Because... Anyway, <laughs> Fanny Crosby even wrote a hymn to the Christian flag called "The Christian Flag." Right? How awesome the Christian flag is, and let's let's salute the Christian flag um, today. It's flown in churches all across the country, and as time goes on, more and more overseas, usually next to the country's flag, the nation's flag. So you have both flags flying. Except most Catholic churches refuse to do it because it's a Protestant thing. They're like, no, on principle, we won't fly it because Protestants invented it. But the Eastern Orthodox Church said, dude, we're just going to make our own version of it. Oh, wow. So they made their own version of it, and that flies increasingly in their sanctuaries. So you'll see that thing all over the place. I think it's yeah. actually, the thing. That's a whole other... Um, it's, a Rush, yeah, it's, a, it's a Russian... yeah, it's a Russian. There is actually a Pledge of Allegiance to the Christian flag. That sounds an awful lot like the you American. It. We yeah. would do the one to the American flag, and then we would do the one to the, the Christian flag. Which is not to link the, the Christian flag with the American flag, because they have no relationship. One Savior crucified, risen, coming again, with life, liberty for all. Okay, again, none of which is horrible. It's just it, it's just interesting to me that that. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to be so conscientious here. <laughs> um, okay, I, I it's, said it. You, you said it. <laughs> um, it's, it. It's my concern. It, it's great that you that, that people want to have a, a, a flag of identity to remind themselves that they're part of the kingdom of God first and foremost. It's, it's great that they want to have a a, a a a visual focal point with that. I, my concern is larger than just the Christian flag thing. My concern is any time that we say, here's what the world does, let's shine it and say that's what we do for Jesus. Any time that we do that, it always... It just, it, it's always fraught with peril. So I'll, just, I'll say it that way. It's not, not horrible, it's not a bad thing, it's just fraught with peril. All right, 1908. she <laughs> 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 they last. <laughs> Because I promised Eric we'd include it. They (laughs) won in 1907. The Cubs are on fire. They've set the world record for the most consecutive World Series played 1906, 1907, 1908, played them back to back, and set the record for the most World Series victories in 1907 and 1908. They were the greatest team in baseball. Not just because they won a World Series, but everybody would agree they are the best team in the last three years. This is the best team anybody's ever seen. This is the Chicago Tribune the day after they won the 1908 World Series. They came back to the series in 1910, and then 1918, and then 1929, and 1932, 1935, 1938, and finally 1945. They were in the World Series a ton. Everybody said, oh, they're an awesome team. Even if they couldn't seem to get a victory for nothing, they're an awesome team, because they've been in the World Series time and time and time again. So by the time 1945 rolls around, everybody's like, man, these guys are good, but this just can't get a break. And these hard-luck heroes, they keep coming, but they haven't gotten a win since 1908, almost 40 years. They didn't get another victory until 2016, right? Which means that all the media hoopla this week is totally understandable, right? When the Sun-Times and the, the Tribune both agree on something... <laughs> <laughs> that's important. Um, it is. It's totally understandable. And the game itself, if you watch, watched the series, and especially that last game, an amazing number of commentators have said, that's the greatest game I've ever seen, in terms of the level of intensity, the level of suspense of things. Um, it is historic on a number of different levels. It's more than just, yeah, it was good. It's like, no, it was, as baseball goes, a stinking amazing but consider, and this is why I'm including this, team held the record for the most wins and the most consecutive appearances. That same team later held the records for the longest route between appearances and wins. The team that everybody said, oh, they're the most amazing team in baseball, became perennially perceived as the worst team in baseball, or the most losingest team in baseball, or the hardest luck team in baseball, however you want to view them. When, when even their fans refer to them as the lovable losers, that should say something. Like Babe Ruth held the record for most home runs and most strikeouts at the same time, I and mean, that's telling. So, I encourage you take a lesson from ancient Rome. Remind yourself, that, and not just with baseball, but in, in every aspect of life, this too shall pass. Nothing lasts forever. Nothing horrible lasts forever. Nothing spectacular lasts forever. It's just part of life. Don't ever lose hope. Don't ever get cocky. Things change. They're going to change tomorrow. It's not something that you should get droopy about, it's not something you should get excited about, it's just it's a thing. This is why, like I said, emperors had a guy whose whole job is to pass and other things, is to stand behind the emperor, no matter what's going on, you whisper in the emperor's ear, this too shall pass. You got a big, huge parade in your honor, this too shall pass. There will be a time where you're not popular. You just lost your legions, this too shall pass. Also, probably worth noting when you talk about Babe Ruth, you talk about the etc really need to recognize the absolute, crucial importance of base hits. If you watch the game, you understand, if you watch the game with me, you even heard me yelling, just get a base hit, stop swinging for the fence, please. All you need to do, you got the bases loaded, there's two outs, just get on base. You got to run, oh, swing for the fence. And you struck out, you doofus. So it's like, just get a base hit. How important is it to just get a base hit? And don't watch the ball. Just go to the base. Well, fair enough. My point, though, we tend to judge our lives by home runs and strikeouts. We tend to judge our lives by, I did something awesome, or I did something horrible. I'm going to do something awesome. Oh, I'm just afraid something horrible is going to happen. But hopefully it'll be something amazing. Boy, I know your life is really hard right now, but I think God has something amazing in store for you. We tend to want to judge by home runs. And strikeouts when what wins the game arguably what won that final game was a double that's what won the game and it's like what 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 really we need to focus on in life is just do well just do confidently get on base if everybody just gets on base if every batter got on base you destroy the other team wouldn't you if everybody came home just hit a single every time you'd go, you go you, you'd, you'd win a thousand to nothing And yet, we tend to say, we need to have some huge revival. I need to reach a million people. And this will be amazing. It's a huge home run. You know, can you speak to one person this week? Can you speak to one person about Jesus? But I want to see a thousand people come to know the Lord. If you do, if you want to see a thousand people come to know the Lord, statistically, the best thing you can do is talk to one. Just talk to one. Invest in one person. And then maybe after you invest in them, Six months from now, they're investing in one person. So each of you are now investing in somebody. And after another six months, the four of you are each gonna invest in another sixteen others. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Just get a base hit. Just focus on that. Make a certain amount of sense? Yeah. On base almost every time. Yep. Yeah, it, it mattered He wasn't doing something spectacular yep. It's an excellent example. I mean, Zobrist. I mean, he's also studied to be a pastor, so, woo! From Central Illinois. Um, but yeah, his, his thing wasn't to hit home runs, though he's hit home runs. But his thing was just consistently get on base, do a hit. Bat runs in, and he was giddy to do it. Anyway. 1909, the Schofield Reference Bible was published. Anybody ever hear of the Schofield Reference Bible? This was the study Bible in my. <laughs> Must there be a boo every week? <laughs> this is the study Bible that, I, I, that my family grew up with. I, I, I saw this in my home as I was growing because it's about the only one around at that time. As a youth, Michigan born, Tennessee raised, Cyrus, not Charles. Uh, Schofield was very colorful. <laughs> He enlisted in the Confederate Army and then got injured and said, I don't want to be in the Army anymore, so they let him go. And then he was later conscripted back in the Army. So then he deserted and went north to live in St. Louis, where he married a rich woman, had a couple of daughters, and we then deserted um, because he's kind of a jerk. Raging alcoholic. Like, he was a corrupt lawyer. He was indicted on a number of, st- number of charges. Um, possibly even spent time in jail because of financial mismanagement. Not a nice guy. How do you say that? Eventually, a fellow lawyer led him to Christ, and he completely turned his life around, became a totally different guy. He even helped D.L. Moody when his evangelistic crusade came to St. Louis. Uh, he was the president of the local YMCA, remember, Young Men's Christian Association, back when that actually meant something. And became an ordained minister. In fact, he even pastored Moody's church in Massachusetts. So, it's like, turned his life around. Founded the Central American Mission to, to Central America, founded Lake Charles College, did a lot of different things, but most people, if they know anything about it today, know about the Schofield Reference Bible, which was the first reference Bible for the modern everyday Christian. I mean, it's just, like I said, until you get to like, the NIV Study Bible, it, this was the only thing known, really. No, know Ryrie. But, but anyway, <laughs> it was the King James Bible, edited solely by Schofield and it was the first on-page commentary notes in a bible since the geneva bible back in 1560. that's like 30 years right that's 650 years 650 years that's 300 i can't do math 350 years that's a long thing in time i know go figure They had references between different verses. This verse connects to this verse. They had chronologies of biblical events. It was a one-stop shop. Chronology was based on James Usher's timeline of Christianity. Remember when we talked about Usher, he came up with the idea that the earth was clearly created on October 22nd, 4004 B.C. He did the math. He counted up all the different ages of all the different people that were begetted in the Old Testament. And he's like, no, there it is, 4004 B.C. Which, if you count up all the people begetted in each one is right after the other, and all that kind of stuff is about where you come up with. Anyway, so an entire generation of Americans sat there and said, I finally get it. I understand the Bible now. I, I didn't understand it before, now I get it. It was a huge bestseller. Everybody had a copy of the Schofield Reference Bible. And they understood the Bible now, because he explained it to them. Which, if we can withhold the booze for a moment, you know, is a whole lot of work, and he did a really good job on a lot of it, but it's still just one guy's interpretation, And anytime you have a one guy's interpretation, there are going to be other people who say, no, or boo. So, chronology also made use of the dispensational interpretation of scripture pioneered by John Darby that we talked about before. Remember when we talked about dispensationalism versus covenant theology? So, like covenant theology, it broke history up into sections and things, and God dealt with people in different ways in those sections. Unlike covenant theology, each dispensation effectively supplanted the one before, so the, in the modern church age, we are now the people of God. We are the true Israel. And Israel is not, unless you're in progressive dispensationalism, in which case, yeah, they sort of still are. What so. is that oh, this guy did this.
1: Darby or yeah.
0: Darby would be early 1800s. Okay. This is early 1900s. That Schofield referenced by the reference Bible. So final dispensation uh, is going to be when Christ returns and establishes His rule for a millennium. Anybody ever hear of like that sort of theory? Behind ish kind of stuff? Yeah. So, before the beginning of a perfect eternal life of the Lord, there's going to be a tribulation, a final rebellion by Satan, etc., when God is going to fulfill all the remaining biblical prophecies. That's dispensationalism. That's Darby, and that's Schofield. And that's what a lot of people who see themselves as biblically conservative Christians say well, this is clearly what the Bible says. I'm not even trying to present my own view on this on this one here right now. I'm just saying, an amazing number of Christians in the United States who say, I consider myself biblically conservative, what they mean by that is this. Which doesn't mean this isn't true. I'm just saying, this is a specific interpretation of it. Why is it that an amazing number of people who consider themselves biblically conservative Christians see this as what it means to be biblically conservative? Yes, because you have generations. You have a hundred years of people saying, This is the only study Bible out there. So, prior to the publication of the Schofield Study Bible, all this was basically gobbledygook. This is something that Plymouth Brethren believe. I don't understand any of that. After its publication, it became essentially gospel. I mean, actually, almost literally, it's the gospel. This is what the Bible says to an entire generation of American Bible-believing Christians. Tell me, there are people today that consider the study notes in their Bible like Bible verses. How many times? We just talked about that in youth understanding what's actually about it. I, know. I you know. All due respect. I mean, every once in a while, and, and, and they don't necessarily mean it this way, but all, every once in a while, even in our small group, <laughs> Bible study, somebody will say, Well, my Bible says, or, you now, in my Bible, in your Bible's study notes, it's not that your Bible says this, it's your Bible's study notes say this. It's not scripture, it's something at the bottom of the page of scripture. What? Is Ryrie a too? Or what oh, that, no, let's talk about Ryrie when we oh, get to okay, okay. okay, soon there's this growing divide even amongst lay people between those who saw the Christianity as being devoutly following the Bible i.e. the Schofieldians and people who saw it as essentially being really nice to one another. <laughs> no. Having said that, No, I'm with you. Because we talked about that earlier that it shouldn't be an either or. You sh- should you be nice? do this again. We have to up two I'm a huge fan of Ambrose Beers. and Ambrose Beers said there are two kinds of people in the world: the righteous and the unrighteous. And the categorization is done by the righteous. We will always tend to split up into two camps. I have a star on my belly. You don't. Therefore, I'm cool, and you're not. Why, dude? star Uh, so yes, there's always going to be that. I'm not saying it's okay, but there's always going to be that kind of divide because we just tend to like to see why we're and I I will say I hate to say it, but we'll even divide up into two camps people who divide people into camps and then good people like us right don't we sometimes say I wish you were open minded like me everybody should be as open minded as I am so you're intolerant of my intolerance. Exactly! We can't have people of your level of intolerance around. I wish they'd just throw intolerant people like you in the camps! We tend to do that. So it's a darn stinking shame. But suddenly being biblical, being conservative, is being equated with being dispensational, which isn't necessarily that, it's just all of this is kind of getting muddied a little bit. It's in this context that the ecumenical movement began. Um, The word ecumenical comes out of the Greek phrase oikumenem ge, which means uh, the the, the inhabited world. The whole, it's kind of like when we talk about the whole civilized world, everywhere where there's people doing civilized kinds of things. The early church, when they had councils between Rome and Constantinople, would talk about them being ecumenical councils, meaning churches are coming from everywhere where there are people to be part of this council. The whole world, from England all the way to Constantinople. The whole world. (laughs) Um, and, blah, blah, blah. and the bishops in Constantinople began calling themselves the Ecumenical Patriarch of Constantinople. Because people coming from all over the place, they're the bishop of all over the place, right? Which Rome got very upset about, because they said, no, only Rome is ecumenical. You can't be ecumenical, because Rome is in charge of everything, so, so there are a succession of folks that wrote rather stern letters to the ecumenical patriarchs of Constantinople saying, stop it, you're not the ecumenical patriarch. Only the Bishop of Rome is ecumenical. You have to stop using the word. So, again, I think we've said, we tend to always go, no, you're doing it wrong. So, it's just a human thing. Anyway, 1910. um, Representative from all the different Protestant churches around the world came together in Scotland for the World Missionary Conference in Edinburgh. Conference pulls together experience. They're like, we've been doing intense missions work for the last 100 years. What have we learned? Everybody's doing it on their own. Everybody's got these little mission agencies all over the place. How do we actually help each other? What what have you learned? they, They spent two years doing this massive study in eight different areas. I said, we sent off different people who were good at different things, and we said, figure this out. Study this for two years. And then come back together in 1910, and let's all talk about how to do this together. Why don't we learn from one another instead of reinventing the wheel all the second time? put together this massive hate volume thing, had eight special sessions on these eight topics. Really quite a cool thing. Not only did this systematize missions work so that in the 20th century, missions work was a lot more homogeneous in its structure than it was in the 19th century. But anyway, um, not only did it organize missions work, but it was also the first major attempt for multiple denominations to come together and figure stuff out together. Can we all sit in a room together and do something religious without, like, hitting each other. Which is really, really cool. Decade later, the ecumenical patriarch, <laughs> I'm sorry, Germanist of the, the, the Constantinople, issued this encyclical saying, why don't every church, just, why don't we just all come together and work and worship together? That would be nice, wouldn't it? 1925, Swedish Archbishop Nathan Söderblom convened the World Conference of Life and Work focused on churches coming together to do social issues around the world. Let's work together about how we work together. Because when it comes down to it, when it comes down to it, we all agree that Christianity at its core is to be really nice people who love the Lord and love people and want to do good stuff. Right? We can all agree with that, can't we? We may not agree on exactly the nature of Christ or exactly the nature of the Atonement or exactly the nature of the sacraments, but we can agree that he wanted us to be nice to people and help people and build bridges in Paraguay and dig ditches and wells in Uganda. Nothing wrong with that. 1948, World Council of Churches convened in Geneva. Focus on that sort of thing. This is great. That's their adopted logo. Saying, yes, it's like we're a boat on the ocean, or on, the, on, the, on, the, on the great lake of, uh, of uh, Gennesaret. Okay, not everybody was excited about the new ecumenicalism, strangely enough. Catholics fought it forever. They're going, no, there is no ecumenicalism except in Rome. Have we not been very clear about this? We don't even let the Eastern Orthodox people call themselves ecumenical because we're the only ecumenical ones. How on earth are we going to let the Baptists think that they can be? There is no ecumenicalism unless everybody becomes Catholic. Eastern Orthodox said, no, 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 we actually wanted everybody to work on this, but we all have to agree on things like the sacraments, right? I mean, we can't come together if we don't do that. Devoutly biblical Protestants, Baptists, Pentecostals, etc. said, I'm uncomfortable with the, we're just getting more and more liberal in a way we're looking at the Bible, less and less conservative, and I'm a little concerned that we're focusing on social gospel instead of on gospel, gospel, gospel. So the World Council of Churches said, okay, okay, we've just come through two world wars, I think we can just, let's round off all the edges of all this doctrine stuff, let's, we're not going to worry about sacraments, we're not going to talk about church authority we are going to be, we're going to define Christianity as you love Christ, whoever that is in your mindset. And you want to follow the Bible, however you feel like doing that. We're not going to talk theology. We're just going to focus on social orientation, on, on how we help immigrants, stuff like that. And the Catholics said, thank you, because since World War II, it's, well, increasingly we've had no political voice at all. In World War II, we had a pope that said, I'm not talking to nobody. Sure, the Nazis can do what they want. I'm not saying they're okay. I'm not saying they're bad. Let's just stay neutral and please don't take over the Vatican. Wait, we've got a post-war voice in in the political, socio-political realm? we're fine with that. Eastern Orthodox Church said, okay, as long as we never discuss anything deep. I don't want it. Let's not discuss or assume any theology. If we never discuss the sacraments, we can get away with that. The biblical Protestant denomination sat there and went, you, you're nuts. We can't do that! Get together and talk about everything other than God and genuine mission? That's kooky! We refuse to attend this. Meaning the only representation coming from America came from the mainline denominations, like Lutheranism, Presbyterians, Methodists, etc. Those guys sent stuff because they've been around forever and they're doing it. The newer, energetically, let's get back to the bible you kind of stuff, those guys didn't want to come. Meaning, there's a widening gulf between... People who perceive themselves as conservative and increasingly conservative new churches and the people that those churches perceive as liberal churches, mainline churches, older established churches that are based more on doing what we've always done or church authority and less on, well, what does the Bible specifically say on this? Which is not to say that Lutherans and Presbyterians are not biblical. That's not what I'm getting at. It's just there's a lot of these younger denominations. They're being consciously focused on what is the Bible saying. Start with that. So, 1910, the Fundamentals series was published, focusing on the doctrinal roots of conservative Christianity. Let's remind everybody of why conservative, fundamentally biblical Christianity is important. Anybody know what group took their name from the publishing of this series? The Fundamentalists came out of this. But it came out of uh, of this, this context of which are we? Are we study bible Let's do things because Jesus was God in the flesh and we understand God correctly kind of Christians? Or are we oh, let's get past all those prickly differences and let's hug each other because Jesus was really a hug the leper kind of God, Not a heal the leper kind of guy, but a hug the leper kind of guy. Which kind of Christianity do you have? This stuff is all reacting to one another and there's an increasing gulf between what it between two different camps of what it means to be a Christian, do you still see that gulf today? What's interesting is both sides see that huge gulf and both sides look at the other side and say, you just don't get it, do you? That's probably. Dear Lord, thank you. <laughs> because we don't get it. Not just the other side doesn't get it, we don't get it. We, we come up with so many things that we think are so crucially important Help us, Lord, to always keep in mind the stuff that you think is crucially important. Not to assume that we've got the only line and the last word on truth. But to remind ourselves every day that you absolutely do. So I pray, Lord, help us to, help us to delve into your word every day. To exegete, not eisegete. To remind ourselves what you think is important. Not just what our denomination does or what our pastor does or what our culture does. Help us, Lord, to be truly ecumenical in the sense of wanting everybody to come together and remind ourselves that we are one body, one group, one faith. But to remind everyone that that faith needs to be based on your word, your rock, your unchanging truth. Help us, Lord, to be nice and right. In Jesus' name, amen.